Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 10, Moving Pictures. Moving Pictures is the 10th book in the Discworld series. Published in 1990, the book is the first sort of standalone novel in what is generally referred to as the Industrial Revolution's thread of the Discworld series, focusing on steampunk magic hybrid technology. This is our 10th episode. How does it feel to be almost a quarter of the way done with the series, Nigel? I can't believe I'm a decade old. All right, I want you to know that I started the summary in a world gone mad. Oh, excellent. But then I didn't actually know where to go from there. But anyway, in a world gone mad, Victor Tugelbend has studiously avoided being a real wizard and getting entangled with magic for years. But one night, he sees a moving picture recently created by the Alchemist Guild and finds himself bound for Hollywood, the place where dreams come true. The alchemists insist that moving pictures are not magic, but Victor, along with his co-star Ginger and Gaspode the Wonder Dog, slowly realize that Hollywood is an ancient place with its own kinds of magic that threatens to tear reality apart and let in the things of the dungeon dimensions. It's up to them to create their own reality and save the world just in the nick of time using a little movie magic. With a thousand elephants! All right, Nigel, what were your first impressions of this novel? This strange, strange little novel. I loved this. What did you love about it? I think all of it. Well, okay, there's one thing that I didn't like. My favorite thing was the way it described Hollywood as an entity and the way it dreamt on its own. You know, it feels very Lovecraftian, very Shirley Jackson, you know, whatever dreamt whatever walked the halls and hill house walked alone there's even a part at the end where they it's referred to as cinema but with a ct at the beginning like cthulhu yeah. cinema c t h i n e m a yeah cinema cinema so hollywood is a place but it's also an idea and it's an idea that wants to be dre- like it dreams and it wants to be discovered it wants to be acted out yeah so you liked that sort of again i wish there was a better word for it and i think i'm just gonna start calling it it is generally known as Lovecraftian, but i think i'm just gonna start calling it jemisian <laughs> like the nk jemison the city we became oh uh, yeah although the city we became does fall into explicitly Lovecraftian with uh Rilea. Right, but it's it's like anti-Lovecraft. Yeah. Like, it was written by N.K. Jemison as a response to Lovecraft, who was, of course, as we know, incredibly racist. Yeah, and this is actually a bonus Nigel references the Mountain Goats, but there is a Mountain Goats song off of the album Heretic Pride called Lovecraft in Brooklyn, which imagines, like, a day in his life of being just a paranoid racist, and it has some of the best just, like, lyrical play in it you know uh where it's like woke up this morning afraid of my afraid of my own shade went headed down to the pawn shop to buy myself a switchblade oh yeah sorry woke up afraid of my shadow like genuinely afraid they don't use the word shade 
the rhyme afraid with switchblade dear listeners if you don't know this about lovecraft you really should do some research on it he was a terrible racist he was afraid of being replaced which is where a lot of the lovecraftian horror comes along and of course we've often heard white supremacists talk in this sort of language like you will not replace us that kind of thing so that's where a lot of those ideas kind of coalesce into this type of horror but there have been authors who have done it much better than he has without sort of the racist overtones yeah there's also another explicit lovecraft reference in this it's at the end when the senior faculty of one senior university are talking about the the creature from hollywood and they say like be careful that is not dead which can eternal lie which is a line directly from lovecraft and one of them is like it looks pretty bloody dead to me (laughs) yeah but like the line is something like that is not dead which can eternal lie but even in strange eons death can die something like that i got sent that in chthonic or whatever language it is (laughs) that lovecraft uses i got sent that just as a message from a random person when i made a meme about how just how much of a little bitch Cthulhu is really <laughs> I've never listened to That's creepy yeah I've never listened to an episode of this show so I don't know what the swearing policy is so I don't know what you're gonna do with how much a little bitch Cthulhu is I just leave it I figure this is not a family-friendly podcast so sorry to not listen to it but it's like I just cannot listen to my own voice so oh I understand I I mean I get enough listening to my own voice with editing it mm. I do want to talk about all the references because I would say that a good 75% of this book is meta references, especially to classic Hollywood cinema and the cultural context of Hollywood, of making movies, etc. So I do want to talk about that. But before that, let's talk about the characters and sort of the plot of the book. And then we can just like go to town on all of the references that we recognize, because there are so many. Like we're at Harga's House of Ribs. Like we're at Harga's House of Ribs. So let's start with Victor. So Victor Tugelbend is a character that we haven't seen before. He, the, he is the main character of this one book. So we've seen this before in Terry Pratchett, where we'll, we'll just get these like one-off characters that are, are important Tepich. for one book, but don't necessarily have a through line in the series. What did you think about Victor Tugelbend? I just like saying his last name. <laughs> Not Maraschino, which is the name he gets given when he becomes a moving pictures star. I don't know. He was all right. He was kind of like the bland everyman that a Hollywood actor, especially like a character actor in the early days of cinema, had to be. I enjoyed his like dedication to not doing anything. Like, I can really empathize with that as someone who does too much. Yeah, I like how at the beginning, he is given this legacy from his rich uncle, right, who dies. But the conditions are that he has to go to school, so Unseen University, and he has to make at least an 80% on his exams. But Victor doesn't want to be a wizard because, as we know, prior to this book, being a wizard is not necessarily the safest career choice. And so he doesn't want to be a wizard, but he doesn't want to leave school. He knows that the passing grade on the exams every year is an 88, so he consistently makes an 84, which I thought was quite excellent. This reminded me of, like, old Kipling stories about boarding schools and, like, the hijinks that students would get up to 
But see, when you said Kipling there, I know you mean the Rudyard variety, but my brain was like, she means the Mr. variety who makes exceedingly delicious cakes. <laughs> see, I'm not familiar with that. I'm just familiar with the Rudyard kind. Oh my god, come over to the UK and try some of Mr. Kipling's uh, confectionaries. Yeah, I'm on a plane right now, actually, as I am recording this podcast. <laughs> You're on a plane right now? What the fuck? Right now, on a plane. Can all the other people on the plane, like, be a part of this episode? Now this is the time when I pull out all of my voices, and you realize that I don't have a lot of voices, it's just my voice. <laughs> Incredible. So, I think Victor is interesting mainly from the perspective that he's clearly born to be a celebrity. He doesn't really want to do anything much, but he works very hard at not doing anything much. He's very attractive, and he has that like thin mustache that was considered like the height of attractiveness in male movie stars in especially the silent era, but also in, you know, early Hollywood. Yeah, like Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, Clark Gable or Fred Astaire, you know, there's like a lot of different people that had this look. And it's almost like that look is what draws him into Hollywood to make these moving pictures. It's almost like he had to have the look down first. And then that's how Hollywood plugs him into this dream that it's having. I don't know. Because like, I thought that for a while, but then at the end, isn't it just revealed that it's like people are drawn to Hollywood because their ancestors were from there? Yeah, but why is it Victor who is the star and not somebody else? Like, I th I think that his ancestors did come from there, but I imagine that the reason he plays the role that he's supposed to play is because of how he looks. Yeah, he comes from a line of exceptionally good-looking men and women. Exactly, exactly. We also get his co-star, Ginger, because there are two main femme fatale characters in this Book. There's Ginger and there's Ruby, the troll. He has sworn that he did not intentionally name them after redheads, Ginger and Ruby. A lot of people have drawn the connection to Scarlet from Gone with the Wind, which is, of course, a huge part of this book. He says that was not on purpose. I thought the ginger was a reference to Fred and Ginger, like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Yeah, I think he was going more for that. But I just think it's also interesting that both of them have names that basically mean red. So like that could be like a, a reference to Gone with the Wind. But she is she comes from like this little town that you have never, ever heard of. Like this is a classic Hollywood, Hollywood story, right? Like she comes from this like place in the middle of nowhere. She gets discovered. She you know, becomes this movie star. And she, like, Victor says she has this great ambition, but it's not for money and power. It's to be herself, right? To be herself, but as big as possible. I have conflicting feelings about her because on the one hand, she's meant to be this, like, she's meant to be the heroine of the novel, but she falls, and I think that's kind of the point, that she falls into, like, the very, you know, like, misogynisty tropes that f women like like their roles had for them in 50s and 60s films you know like and this is kind of inverted with the the bit at the end the parody of king kong but like the jane in king kong you know how he, she's like kind of this swoony uh you know and th that's the role she plays in every single film where she gets kidnapped and victor has to go and get her so it's like i'm faced with this dilemma of 
is she a good character that can stand on her own or is she a good character because she's not the character that she plays in the book? If that makes sense? Yeah. And what's interesting about her too is that although the moving pictures that are being made in the book are, they're silent films, right? They never discover how to put sound to the film. So we don't get any soundies as they were called when they were first created. But the way that she and Victor interact is very much similar to the pattern of the, the, um, oh God, what are they called? The, the name is slipping my mind. The, like, uh, it happened one night, uh, screwball comedy. The, the way that they interact is very reminiscent of the screwball comedy, which is a very specific genre of film that de- relies a lot on dialogue. And it relies a lot on sort of an enemies to lovers type of narrative where... Like Rinswind and Death. Really, yeah, they don't really like each other, but they're attracted to each other. But there's a lot of back and forth between them. The woman especially is sort of like put off by the man, but she's attracted to him. And they're, they slowly through a series of hijinks come closer and closer together. That's kind of the relationship between them, right? She's not all that impressed by him at the beginning, but she, as, as they go along and as they go through these things, they start to slowly realize, and there's this great moment, I think at the end where it's like where they realize that they almost have to be together, not just because they are attracted to each other, but because there's literally no one else on the disc that has been through what they have been through. Like no one else understands the celebrity, like the the magic or the world-bending power of celebrity. What did you think about their relationship? I'm sorry, you're asking me what I thought about a romantic relationship and a piece of fiction? I understand. I just, I feel like I always have to ask just to see, like, because sometimes you seem like maybe you get a little invested and then sometimes you're like, I don't care. And so that's the least surprising answer possible. This one I did not care and that's fair. It's very basic. Yeah, but the moment at the end is a nice moment because I think it ties into, oh my god, we're going to bring it up again, this notion of identity and where you belong in the disc world. Where And it's kind of like a thing which happens to people who are survivors of trauma as well, where they bond because they have this one defining experience, which is so alien to a large population or a large part of the population. And, you know, like, because really, they were just movie stars. But, you know, as what we've seen from documentary evidence and, like, with Disney Channel stars and stuff, how grueling being in the public eye can be. Um, so it is a form mm-hmm. of trauma to be in the public eye. That's a good quote. Write that down. It is a form of trauma to be in the public eye. But then I'm also going to uh, just follow it up with, you know, it is also a form of trauma to be terrorized by beings outside of this uh, universe. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's funny how the two come together yeah. in this. Might I quote Lovecraft again? Of course. Because just because I had to like find some quotes where I'm quoting him in my dissertation. And so this is from the uh, start of the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. I really like that. I, I have read that story but it's been a really long time but yeah the idea of we have so much of our brain that we just can't even yeah we can't access all of it yeah and because it's like it would it would be actively harmful to us if we did 
Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Like pure knowledge of everything. We would just not even be able to handle that. So we get these two very like, I mean, I think they're they're good characters, but they are pretty basic in Victor and Ginger, which I think, like you said, is part of the point. Like they're supposed to be celebrity like every man, right? Or every woman. Like this idea that you can sort of read all of these different references onto them. Yeah. We also get one of my favorite characters of the Discworld is introduced in this book. We get Gaspod, the Wonder Dog. I was uncertain about him to begin with, I have to say. Because it was just like, oh, he's another talking character in Pratchett who speaks with a regional accent. And it's like, okay. And the gimmick is then that he's just like a talking dog. I was like, sure, that's fine. But then like, I gradually grew more and more like empathetic with him as he you know like especially when he's with laddie and laddie is barking and saying complete another like just nonsense you know just good boy laddie laddie good boy and gaspot is actually talking and everyone ignores him yes when it got to the point where death visits them when they're underneath the rubble of the cinema pit i was like i was like oh no he's going to die I cared about that. Didn't care about the relationship between Victor and Ginger, but cared about Gaspod. So Terry Pratchett originally, I know a lot of trivia about this book somehow, but Terry Pratchett originally meant for Gaspod to die at the end of this book because dogs usually die in movies about them. That's sort of like a trope with a lot of movies involving dogs. They reference that then. Maybe Hollywood has something against dogs, right? Right, exactly. But his editors and beta readers loved Gaspod so much that they convinced him to actually keep Gaspod alive, which is great because we get to see him in other books. And I actually think he serves really important roles in other books. Some of my favorite dog jokes in other books are around Gaspod, the Wonder Dog, although they don't call him the Wonder Dog in other books. Well, that's just because Gaspod the Wonder Dog dies. I was thinking about that and like how that makes sense because we get the interaction where he's like, where Gaspod says, I thought to be a black dog, you know, big, this big black dog would come and collect me. And Death says, no, it's just me at the end, you know, very much like yeah. what he says to Mort, there is no justice or only me. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was like, but then he did the old switcheroo again where the, the uh, hourglass, that's the word starts filling up again. Like he did with Mortz when he flipped it. Which, and so it's like, well, Gaspard the Wonder Dog dies. And after that, he begins to be like more of a dog, you know, and he, he sees the monochrome world again. Right. So like right. He, he dies and is reborn, essentially. And so then it, it made sense in my head because I'm like, I don't know how that would work. Because again, the timeline is a bit iffy. And I know this takes place before Reaper Man. Right. But I feel like this is. Right definitely one of the incidents that would make the auditors be like we need to sack death (laughs) yes also i really want a series now where this is like a thing and then they come together to form a team all of these people who death has like reversed has flipped the hourglass on so it'd be more gaspard and then uh, i don't know a bunch of other characters will probably meet that this have happened they become like the avengers of the disc world <laughs> so gaspod and mort at this point i think right yeah just them but we'll probably meet a whole bunch more that's what i want that would be really great i we're gonna have to keep a track of that because yeah i think those are the only two we've seen so far that he's flipped the 
timer around. Gaspot is not the only animal to acquire talking abilities. Hollywood or Hollywood has also given talking abilities to a cat and a mouse who are clearly supposed to be Tom and Jerry from the Tom and Jerry cartoons. We also get a rabbit, which is a Bugs Bunny reference. Most of them are animated, right? But we still we get a duck, which is a Daffy Duck reference or Donald Duck either way. So, yeah, I think that that's interesting. There are a lot of animated ducks in cartoons. Like, I just started realizing this as I was reading it. I'm like, is he Daffy or is he Donald? Like, there's too many of them. Is he Daffy, Donald, Darkwing, Scrooge, Huey, Louie, Dewey, uh, Duck Dodgers? Granted, a lot of those are kind of just formations on Daffy. Like, Duck Dodgers is just Daffy, but in the future. In the 24th and a one-half century. But, yeah. Daisy. Daisy is also a duck. Daisy is also a duck, that's true. Tina Russo, yeah. I do love that scene that you referenced so earlier with Gaspod, where he and Laddie, who is clearly supposed to be like a Lassie reference, they run from a cave. Classic classic Lassie storyline. Victor and Ginger find themselves stuck in a cave, and Laddie and Gaspod go to the nearest bar to tell the people there, what had happened and lead them back to the cave. And what's great about this is that, and it's a thread throughout the entire book, is that Gaspod is the wonder dog. He is the one who has the ability to speak. He is the one who gains like this, this consciousness that's not generally available to animals. However, he doesn't look like a dog that belongs in a movie, right? He's kind of an elderly terrier. His teeth aren't great. He's got fleas and hard paw, and he's been on the street his whole life. There's a really sad backstory in there. I don't know if you noticed that, but I was like, oh man, Gaspod, you have a terrible backstory, but he doesn't look like it. And the whole point is, is that in cinema, you have to look like the role. And Laddie, even though he doesn't talk, he looks like a dog. He can do tricks and he is beautiful and he looks like a dog that belongs there. And so even with Gaspod, who is so nervous about revealing his ability to talk to these trolls, he just gets completely ignored in favor of Laddie, who can't talk, but somehow manages to take them back to the cave to rescue Victor and Ginger. It is a great ironic scene. The small, weary, moth-eaten dog thought hard about the difference between looking and acting like a wonder dog and merely being one. It said, bugger. So, Yeah, like the idea of the difference between looking and acting like a wonder dog and merely being one. That's a big part, I think, of this idea of movies, right? That movies are almost more real than reality because of the ways in which they create and replicate these narratives that we think this is how it's supposed to happen. This is how it's supposed to look as opposed to reality, which doesn't look that way and doesn't happen that way, but it's really real. Yeah, and we get that in we get that when they build the, the scale model of Ankh Morpork, you know, where it says it looks realer than Ankh Morpork, you know, right before they go and burn it. Yeah, let's talk about that. So obviously, there's a lot of Lovecraftian stuff going on here, but a big part of this is this idea that cinema, even though it's not magic in the technical sense, it's not unseen university magic, it's not headology magic, but it's Like, it is this reality-bending experience in which people, while they're looking at the screen, believe that it's real in a way that perhaps they don't have that same experience in the theater or reading a book or being told a story. 
Like there's something about the visual aspect of moving pictures that kind of surpasses that part of your brain that tells you that this is a story. Yeah, like I mean, a different like I suppose the main difference is that like there's a disconnect. Like when you go and watch something in the theater, you can see the actors on stage; they're right there. Whereas when you go to a movie, yeah, it's real people unless it's animated, but it's real people providing the voices, you know. But there's a disconnect where they're not; you don't have that tangible feeling. So the only feeling that there is is the shared feeling between audience members, as opposed to the shared feeling between audience members and people on stage and the like experience of that trans because when you're watching theater you know it's transformative they do something and you imagine it whereas films it's just put in front of your face and gone this is what it is right and i i just keep coming back to this it's more real than reality because i i mean i've had this experience and i'm curious to know if you ever have this idea where I will realize something isn't actually real, but I sort of believed it was real based on a movie or based on like TV or something like, like TV lied to me. You know, I thought that I was going to have more friends when I was an adult and we would all live in an apartment together or, you know, something like that. I've never seen Friends. I presume it's a reference to that. I was thinking more how I met your mother, but also Friends. Never seen is, that is the either. obvious one too. But you know what I mean? Like where you think something is real because you've seen it in movies enough times and then you're like, oh, that's not actually real. I have never had that experience. Really? I'm shocked. Yeah, I'm too busy dealing with like things that my mind makes up having to like deal with whether they're real or not. One time I had a dream that I like went up from my bedroom up to the sitting room in my house and there was a ghost there and it chased us out of the sitting room. It was a dream. But like for ages, my brain was like, yeah, that just totally happened. I'm not saying like it's real as in like I've consciously thought, oh, like this is what real life looks like. It's just like you see something like the way that you watch movies and the way that you watch television or anything that's on a screen like that. It bends the way that you view reality. And then one day you wake up and you're like, oh, actually, that's not like that. So like, I mean, the obvious parallel to make here would be beauty standards, right? Like this idea that if you see enough thin people on screen and you're being told like, this is what's beautiful, this is what a beautiful woman looks like, that eventually you will start to think that that is actually what a beautiful woman looks like. And then one day you might be like, oh, well, actually, there's a lot of different ways that women can be beautiful. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like the idea that it like bends reality around it through the power of like this visual discourse where we're like oh this is what reality should look like this is how it should feel when it's not never had that experience either but (laughs) i mean i guess it's fair i just i that's kind of what this reminded me of was that experience this idea that like when we watch a movie it seems more real it seems more satisfying than real life Is it a good one? Should I be jealous that you've experienced this and I haven't? No, you shouldn't be jealous. It's actually heartbreaking when you realize that, oh, like, actually, everything I thought, like, you feel tricked a lot of times. Like, this idea of, like, oh, I thought that life was going to be better or that that my life was going to follow this narrative or that this was the kind of experience that people have. Nope. That's not how it is at all. Incidentally, that's why representation is actually really important. People talk about it like, it's just a token thing, but actually it's more about 
tapping into the ways that movies do that to people like maybe if we saw different kinds of people on screen we would all treat each other better yeah that's kind of the the theory behind it to that i guess sort of there's a another mountain goats lyric uh which is not the one for nigel quotes the mountain goats uh this one another bonus another bonus yes is from the song You Were Cool, which is an unreleased one, but you can see them perform it live uh, sometimes. There's videos on YouTube. The second verse says, It's good to be young, but let's not kid ourselves. It's better to pass on through those years and come out the other side with our hearts still beating, having stared down demons, come back breathing. And I think, to your point of, you know, waking up one day and realizing that it's not things aren't how you thought they would be or thought that they were and like yeah you made it through those times but it's better to have gone through them and come out the other side instead of being like do i want to live in that space that i've just been through right i'm not saying that it's a bad realization it's just not a pleasant one no it's always good to realize that when you're unconsciously absorbing something that isn't true it's always good to realize that it's not true and of course Because Hollywood and moving pictures are more real than real, that creates like a puncture in the walls of reality. And the danger, of course, is letting the Dungeon Dimension creatures... I'm so glad they're back. ...are constant companions when it comes to wizardry. And in fact, there's this great scene. Again, we're back to the really good imagery. Like I said, I couldn't really imagine the mall in Reaper Man. I could imagine this, and it was great. The scene where the giant ginger crawls out of the movie screen Mm. is like one of my favorite images in this. It reminded me a lot of the film The Ring, or Ringu, if you're you're looking at the Japanese original version, where she crawls out of the video screen. It's It's a horrific moment in the film. But it also reminded me of like that, again, Lovecrafty and like the screen is actually the portal from the dungeon dimensions into the disc world. Yeah, that's a point as well. This book is what I wish the subplot about the malls in Reaper Man was like it should have had mm. its own book like this, you know, and you like I was saying, they should have given like a relation to death plot to do with that you know like the Wendell Poons and the second chance club would do where they would figure out about the build-up in excess energy uh in excess life energy but it would be you know like it would be just to do with death instead of having malls come in you know and so then right right you would have a book about malls which would be like moving pictures where I don't know maybe like the way that everyone starts going to Hollywood, everyone would start like spending time in this mall that had been set up on the outskirts of Ankh-Morpork where, you know, where people, instead of going into a trance in a film, in a click here, they would be like pushing a trolley around, you know, mindlessly. And then, you know, you'd wake them up and they'd be like, what the fuck am I doing? I don't know. That's the type of book. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that's the type of book that I I wanted that plotline to be. Like this book, but about moles. I thought that this was an excellent use of the things from the Dungeon Dimensions. I like that they have to obey the Hollywood rules when they come into the Discworld reality, which, as we know, 
Discworld reality is stretched a little thinner because it doesn't have as much reality as, say, a real world like Earth. And so it makes it easier for the dungeon dimensions to pierce through that barrier. But once it's here, it has to follow the rules of Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, this is literally the climactic moment of it, chapter two, where they bully it to death for some reason. (laughs) You know, because you have to follow the rules of the shape you assume. Exactly. And that's a pretty classic mythological trope, right? Like if you're in a certain shape, if you can catch a god or something in a certain shape, you can sort of manipulate it into doing what you want it to do. Yeah. It also is the climactic scene from King Kong because yes. the ginger thing from the Dungeon Dimensions climbs up the Tower of Art while holding the librarian in its hand while Rid Coley and the Bursar fly around it on a broom trying to hit it with a crossbow. So it's like a reversal of King Kong. Yeah. An analog gender swapped King Kong. I like how when they're filming it, when um, Saul Dibbler and the the handleman are trying to capture it on film, how they're like, it's missing a certain something. And then Rid Coley and the Bursar show up on the broom and it's just like, oh, yeah, like you need the planes right in that screen in that shot. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the wizard aspect of this. So we get to see Wendell Poons. You weren't expecting to see Wendell Poons again, were you? No. Did you do this on purpose? I did not, actually. I've only read Moving Pictures once, and it was when I was a teenager. I think it was because I didn't appreciate the meta-references and the steampunkness of it as I do now, so I appreciate it a lot more now than I did then, and I had completely forgotten that Wendell Poons was in this. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about what they did to his character, which is strange because it this is the opposite of how his character played out. Like He was in this, and then he was the Wendell Poons that I liked in Reaper Man, because he kind of turns into this like weirdly horned up older man, which is like, is emblematic of what the wizards are in Pratchett. You know, they are the sexless upper class, the old guard of Britain. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it takes death to like free him from that. But as well, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, we get to see him old before he dies and comes back as the zombie. So this is before he gains that clarity of death. Yeah. So he's all like in this old body and, you know, being very much ruled by the body's impulses, by the fog of old age. I do love the description of his wheelchair, like the cast iron welded wheelchair with all of like the horns and and bells and stuff on it. I thought that was great. Hmm. But yeah, he is definitely a punchline, right? Like the rest of the wizards are very sexless. They're very upper crusty. And he is just supposed to be like the horny old dude. Yeah. What I thought. Although we are told he's the oldest wizard. That's what I was going to say. What I thought was interesting was that Victor confirms that it's the oldest wizard, which then makes his passing in Reaper Man nearly sadder. The fact Because like between... this book and then no one will have gotten older than him because that's not how aging works you can't age faster than someone unless like right exactly but he's the oldest wizard on the face of the disc and they don't care they don't care or i think they care but in a like 
I think that the problem with the wizards is that they just don't see death the same way as perhaps the rest of the disc because they're just very, like, not used to it, but they understand it. And since they can know their own deaths, I think that they just get prepared for it more easily, I guess. I don't know how to exactly put what I'm trying to say. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. But if that were the case, why is Wendell surprised when they assign his room to someone else when he's dead? Why does he feel betrayed? I think that's more of like a gut reaction of he wasn't expecting to live that long. Or he wasn't expecting to come back. I don't know. I'm part of the Wendell Poons fan club. Wendell Poons fan club right here. So we also get, of course, Rid Colley, and we get a little added to his backstory of how he became Archchancellor. I love this. The, the wizards, after the events of sorcery, which remember, they can't remember very well because of the ways in which the it was just too much magic. But obviously, there was a lot of chaos in the wake of sorcery. And they were like, we just need someone really dependable who's not going to make a lot of fuss for a couple of months while we try to sort everything out. And so they decide to call back Rid Coley, who's been like away from the university, which explains why we haven't seen his character before. Did you notice they call him Rid Coley the Brown? Yeah. Which is a reference, of course, to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That's part of the joke, right? Is that uh, they are expecting someone like Radagast the Brown from Lord of the Rings, but who shows up is Mudstrom Rid Coley. <laughs> yeah. Who is like the most anti whatever it is you would think a country wizard who's interested in like the plants and the animals and the move like the movements of the earth would be about i thought it was very funny the fact that he like got to be an eighth level wizard by the time he was like 30 and then just decided that's enough for me and left i thought that was hilarious because the whole thing is like getting as high as possible as you can you know and it says, like, being a wizard, you need someone to look down upon and someone to aspire to take their place. Ridkilly got that very early and then just left while everyone else was playing power games. Presumably he was around at the same time that, like, Galder Weatherwax and what's the guy who basically becomes host to the things from the Demon Dimensions? Triman. Yeah, Trimon, like, he would have been around when they were still, like, plotting against one another. If he's an 8th level wizard, he would have been, you know, you know, he would have witnessed that because he's a high level wizard. And he just decided, no, no, not for me. I like that this is his first job as Archchancellor, you know, like, the, like, and not, not for any, like, textual reason. I think it's just good for continuity that there is a definitive point because all of the other Chancellors have been there, like, in situ, except for when Wazy Goose is about to be elected in sorcery, is good for continuity reasons. He's so energetic compared to the other wizards, and because he's been away for so long, he doesn't have, like, the institutional inertia that seems to plague a lot of the other wizards, like the, we've always done it this way, or this is what life is supposed to be like for a wizard. He's very anti all of that so uh, when they're talking about him at the beginning they say within 12 hours of arriving rid Coley had installed a pack of hunting dragons in the butler's pantry fired his dreadful crossbow at the ravens on the ancient tower of art 
drunk a dozen bottles of red wine, and rolled off to bed at two in the morning singing a song with words in it that some of the older and more forgetful wizards had to look up. And then he got up at five o'clock to go duck hunting down in the marshes on the estuary and came back complaining that there wasn't a good trout fishing river for miles. You couldn't fish in the river Ankh. You had to jump up and down on the hooks to even make them sink. And he ordered beer with his breakfast. And he told jokes. Like, this is all very, like, anti the different levels of wizards plotting against each other, trying to gain power. Like, this is someone who is very secure in who he is, is very smart, but also bulldozes everyone around him into doing what he wants. Yeah, he's very like the patrician. I could see that. They have two different styles, but the outcomes are very similar. Yeah, because I'm thinking again of the line from Reaper Man where, you know, you know, if someone was still trying to tell you something after a couple minutes, then he, he knew it was important that way of like basically uh, fielding calls, but verbally. Um, I could see the patrician doing that. But also, I love that list of the things that Rid Cully does, which are um, anathema to wizardry, because it feels like a mounting list, and therefore, at the top, the thing which is the worst, he tells jokes. He tells jokes. We definitely get that part of it. Mustrum Rid Cully, you are charged with crimes against wizardry, most senior of which, <laughs> telling jokes. Telling jokes. Going back to what you were saying about the patrician, though, the patrician is in this in two different places, but it actually kind of goes with what you were saying, because there's this great scene near the end where he's sitting in the in the movie theater and he's about to watch this film and he doesn't really he's not completely clear on what moving pictures are, but he doesn't care. Why are all the lamps being turned down? He said, ah, sir, said Dibbler, it's so you can see the pictures better, is it? One would imagine it would make the pictures harder to see, said the patrician. It's not like that with the moving pictures, sir, said Dibbler. How very fascinating. The patrician leaned the other way to Ginger and Victor. To his mild surprise, they were looking extremely tense. He'd noticed that as soon as they had walked into the odium. The boy looked at all the ridiculous ornamentation as if it was something dreadful, and when the girl had stepped into the pit proper, he'd heard her gasp. They all looked like they were in shock. Skipping down a bit. I expect this is all perfectly commonplace to you, he said. No, said Victor, not really. We've never been in a proper picture pit before. Except once, said Ginger grimly. Yes, except once. But, uh, you make moving pictures, said the patrician kindly. Yes, but we never see them. We just see bits of them when the handlemen are gluing it all together. The only clicks I've ever seen were on an old sheet outdoors, said Victor. So this is all new to you, said the patrician? Not exactly, said Victor, gray-faced. Fascinating, said the patrician, and went back to not listening to Dibbler. He had not got to where he was today by bothering how things worked. It was how people worked that intrigued him. So this is very similar to Rid Coley in the sense that he's, like, not listening. He does not care how moving pictures are made. He doesn't care about the technical parts of it. He has people who to care about that for him. What he cares about is how people work how they view the world and how they change the world around them. And that's why he's the patrician. I really like that because it reminds me of the scene in Guards Guards where Vimes slowly realizes that the locks are on the inside of the cell. That's how he imagines the patrician's mind to be a thing of steel traps and moving cogs where he's got the 
requisite amount of information to do his job and nothing else. Actually, the patrician seems to fall into the, like, Sherlock Holmes archetype, doesn't he? Like, I can imagine him with a violin and a, a widow's peak, you know? Like, the patrician would never... He has a very cold affect, like Sherlock. Would never stoop so low as to play the violin, or any instrument for that matter. But... He has someone to do that for him. Exactly. But that kind of thing, where he just does not want to burden himself with useless knowledge. Exactly. Which Sherlock does, right? Uh, There's a scene, it's in the book, and I don't think they actually talk about this in any of the adaptations I've ever seen. But he gets into an argument with Watson because Watson discovers that he's never, that he does not know that the Earth is a round planet, that the moon revolves around it and it revolves around the sun. And he says, why should it care? It doesn't affect me or my work. And that just takes up knowledge in my, like space in my brain that could be used for other types of knowledge. And so he's like, I'm going to try to forget it as soon as possible, basically. And it's not that he believes the Earth is flat. It's just whatever happens with the Earth or the celestial beings doesn't matter to him. Because what matters to him is his craft, which is detective work. Yeah. So that's kind of what the patrician's like here. Like, he doesn't need to know how moving pictures are made. That doesn't affect his job. Yeah. I feel like the patrician is a mix between Sherlock Holmes in the book. And I don't. But also, I don't imagine that the uh, the patrician does coke recreationally like Sherlock does. No. <laughs> but a mixture he just between... He has his dog. He has a... Uh... Oh, what's his face? Waffles. He has waffles. Mm, I think Waffles and Gaspode would get along. We will have to see that they meet each other. Yeah. Like, I mean, it goes back to then this whole idea of like identity on the disc world with the patrician or veterinary he knows exactly who he is rincewind he's like rincewind you know where rincewind he's the good man where if there's someone if if there's a good thing that needs to be done he's going to do it whether he likes it or not and veterinary is someone needs to rule onk more pork and it's going and it's going to be him you know where like shout out to lozzy like, I mean, he knows who he is, and he's good at his job. And another person who knows exactly who he is, Cut Me On Throat Dibbler. All right, what did you think about Cut Me On Throat Dibbler? I know you like him. Were you expecting him to be a main character? No, like, I mean, when I got the, when I picked up the book, I kind of riffled through the pages, and I like the bit at the end where the elephant man shows up to to talk to Colin and Nobby where he he he's looking for him. So I saw that where they say CMOT Dibbler, and I was like, oh, he's in this book. But I wasn't expecting it to be like this, you know? Where, like, when I saw from the moment I saw him in Garrett's Garrett's, I was like, I love this man. I would die for this man. And then in... in Reaper Man, where he's selling snow globes so he's obviously gotten into the selling snow globes that will end the world business to try and recoup his losses from hollywood but before the reveal i thought this was really good the way they did it it ties back into the eldritch horror thing you know where they talk about having stars in their eyes and how they're starstruck 
like I thought that was a really good way of doing it. And also like having seen uh rewatched the Suicide Squad recently with Star of the Conqueror, that's just very funny to me. But like I didn't like it before that reveal because I was like, oh they're taking I thought they were taking him in like an overly villainous direction. And I didn't like that because I was like, that's against who Dibbler is. But now like with that reveal, because they say like he's got the biggest stars of all, you like it's very depressing. Cause he is just as much a victim, if not more so than pretty much everyone else except for except for Ginger. Because like Victor can break out for a uh, for a lot of it. He can kind of shirk off the uh the control of Hollywood. So the whole narrative is that the Alchemist Guild who live on a street that like blows up a lot because that's what alchemy is. They create the moving pictures and the head of the alchemist guild becomes this movie producer, Thomas Silverfish, who's directly modeled on Samuel Goldwyn, whose real name was Samuel Gelbfish. And Gelb is the German for gold and also money. Exactly. Exactly. So we get that. And he's known for a lot of like malapropisms, like you'll never work in this town again and include me out, which is stuff that Silverfish says in the book. He sees this as a way to make historical or educational films, but Dibbler, under the influence of the Hollywood dreaming, if that's what we want to call it, sees this as a money-making project. He sees this as a way to make a lot of, of money, and it really ties into the commercialization of Hollywood, which, I mean, as soon as they figured out that you could make money off of these things... It became all about making money, right? That's like the main driver of cinema. Like, he literally tries to invent, like, it's just product placement that he, that he invents. Yeah. <laughs> Harga's House of Ribs. Yeah, and the subliminal messaging. Like, the idea of putting a frame in there that doesn't belong there, but your eyes see it, but your brain doesn't necessarily notice it, but you can't stop thinking about it, which is a real thing. Okay. There was a cult in Japan called the Alm Syndicate that was doing that in the 90s where they were putting like little subliminal messages in between frames of like television and trying to like get people to be brainwashed by them. What did you think of Cut Me On Throat Dibbler and his nephew Soul Dibbler? I don't know. It's very weird that his nephew has the same name as him because it feels like that like Dibbler is his own name and only he can have it or it's like a first name in the same way that we refer it doesn't feel like a surname yeah yeah like the same way that we refer to da vinci even if that's like his t- quote-unquote last name you know it's very weird that like saul has the same name as him it's weird yeah and like i, li- I do like how they abbreviate Dibbler's name c-m-o-t Dibbler. I appreciated that. Cut me on throat. Yeah. Dibbler. But yeah, he's our favorite sausage maker slash entrepreneur going into the movies. It's not him. He himself that's shortened it. It's just like that they've taken it from his phrase, you know, which is every like street vendor, you know, and I'm cutting my own throat here, you know, basically killing themselves to sell it that cheap. Nowhere, nowhere in, in the book so far as he referred to himself as cut me on throat Dibbler. Right. <laughs> But everybody else does, to the point where they've abbreviated it. Yeah, everyone looks at him and goes, oh, that's the guy who's, who talks about cutting his own throat. Oh, that's what we'll call him. 
There's another one of your favorite characters in this book, too, Detritus, the splatter from the mended drum. He plays more of a role in this book than he does in previous books we've seen him in. He is Dibbler's bodyguard slash enforcer, and he falls in love. What did you think about Detritus's arc? I like Detritus in this book, but I don't care for the love arc. Because it's like, I like... Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, because it's like, this relationship with Ruby, it, I don't know, it's very weird, because I don't, I'm not a fan of romance arcs when they're in stuff. I'm even less of a fan when they're in there, and they don't serve a point. They don't have a point. You know, because it's like, wh what is this, this isn't saying anything, sorry to be so cynical, but like, what is this saying? That, because like, I guess you can read it as, oh, maybe uh, a paralleling of the eventual getting together of Victor and Ginger. But, like, why does that need paralleling? That It doesn't. So all that it's really saying is, oh, the people who aren't human or don't look like the norm can find love. But it's like, this is the Discworld. No shit. But then it's also just tied up really into this weird narrative where ruby is telling him you know that oh he takes you know like oh he's practicing this barbarous and old-fashioned too old-fashioned form of love uh and she doesn't like that because that's not like up to the modern standards of what a girl wants or whatever but then her uh character's monologue inner monologue is like oh i actually want this but i don't want to tell him because that's giving in to him yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a very weird route that they've gone. Yeah, so the only reason I can think of why she's in this, Ruby, is she is supposed to be this femme fatale character. I mean, she is Marlene Dietrich in the 1930 film Blue Angel. There's a character that she plays called Lola Lola, who's like a cabaret entertainer who sings this song, Falling in Love Again, Why Am I So Blue? And we get a very similar song that Ruby sings, the once again, I am falling in love. Why is it that I am now a blue color? And, you know, it's sort of parodying Marlene Dietrich's accent, but it's also supposed to be like, she is Marlene Dietrich's, but what if Marlene Dietrich was a troll? Like, what if she was a fantasy race? Yeah, but also, like, I don't know, like, they could have just had that as a throwaway reference when Victor goes into the pub to meet with Rock and Maury, which is far too close to Rick and Morty for my liking. I, although Rock is, like, his uh, film name, right? Yeah. Just, like, Ginger has, her name, her actual name is Theta Withel, a.k.a. Ginger, a.k.a. Dolores DeSin, which is, like, her sexy click name. I don't know, like, I read that as kind of, like, a not, because I was trying to think, like, oh, what actress is this a reference to? And I couldn't think of any, and maybe it still is, but I read it as, like, a homophonous pun, where it's meant to sound like dolorous design, you know, like, this artifice or design, which is meant to cause pain and, and sorrow. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. I mean, because it kind of fits into the whole thing with Hollywood. I mean, lots of celebrities change their name to sound sexier, right? Like you want something that sounds sexy and something that sounds that's that looks good on a poster. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Caine's real name is it's Morris Micklewife. <laughs> I did not know that. 
he only legally changed it in about 2013 to Morris McElwhite because like his pot or to Michael Caine because his passport up until that point was still Morris McElwhite and it was getting a bit confusing because everyone knew him as Michael Caine. Wow. Yeah, that would not look great on a poster. <laughs> Do you know Nicholas Cage's real name? Nicholas Coppola, right? Yeah, Nicholas Kim Coppola. He changed it so that way he wouldn't be he, that he, way he wouldn't be associated with his famous uncle. And he chose Cage because he's such a fan of like Marvel Luke Cage comics. I love Nicolas Cage. Like that man is so funny. He's like Nicolas Cage is a nonsense man. Everything <laughs> he does is so ridiculous. Like news article comes out about him. It's just Nicolas Cage quote. I am a goth. I'm like, yes, I'm here for this. <laughs> he has a cat named Merlin who he repeatedly has called his best friend in interviews. Yeah, and in that interview it says like he's got a pet crow who, who mocks him. Oh, love him. He named his child Kal-El, like after Superman. Yeah. <laughs> yep, Nicolas Cage. He's gotta love him. You gotta love him. No one's doing it like him. <laughs> Nobody's doing it like him. I also really love to go back to Ruby for a second, how she says a rock on the head may be quite sentimental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. That reminded me of, of course, the end of Reaper Man, where Death is, he's evaluating diamonds for their affability. <laughs> but mm. I also, it's obviously a reference to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, in which Marilyn Monroe sings, a kiss on the hand might be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. So there's also that. I agree with you. I think they could have made this joke or this parody with Ruby without necessarily making it all caught up in this weird, gendered, romantic stuff. Yeah. But to go back to Detritus, outside of the romance stuff, what did you think about his arc? I really liked it. It feels like a natural progression when you look at, like, bouncers in today's age. Because they're like, they're like a privately contracted security... Like, I mean, they are a security firm because they're meant to protect you. But, you know, like, one that will mess you up if you get in the way. And, like, Detritus is that. Like, he's not a bouncer. He's a splatter. This is an established thing. So, like, now you really have a threat to life and limb. Yeah, and I love the scene where he's, like, confused by Victor and Ginger's dismissal of him. Like, he's trying to intimidate them into getting back onto the set. And both of them are just like, not now. Like, we can't be bothered with this right now. And it says it's because he's used to people either being scared of him or having, like, this suicidal bravado He's not actually used to people having this reaction where they're like, yeah, you're scary, but you're not the scariest thing in our lives right now, which goes to show how horrifying Hollywood really is. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about the trolls and dwarves. And there's even like they say a few elves who are the most elusive of the Discworld races. We're going to be talking about elves soon enough. That That's a whole thing in Discworld. But I do like that the, there's a shout out there. So we get, like you said, Rock and Mori, who are these trolls who are sort of typecast, right, as trolls. And so there's a little bit of an interrogation about what it means to be typecast if you're a certain race or you're a certain ethnicity. So we get that with the trolls, but we also get the dwarves who this struck this hit me a little different because at one point there's this ongoing joke about how they're often being asked to perform dwarvish stereotypes 
And one of the Dwarvish stereotypes that they're asked to perform is singing the song Hi Ho, Hi Ho, which you all know from Snow White, right? The 1937 Disney animated series. And of course, Snow White is getting rebooted by Disney. And this has come under fire recently by actor Peter Dinklage, who is a small person, who basically said, why is Disney remaking this fairy tale that dehumanizes and stereotypes dwarves or small people? I I wanted to make sure I had this right, um, because he accused them of hypocrisy. He was on Mark Maron's podcast, and he said, they were very proud to cast a Latino actress as Snow White, but you're still telling the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. You're progressive in one way, but you're making that backward story about seven dwarves living in a cave. What are you doing, man? Dwarves are still the butt of jokes. It's one of the last bastions of acceptable prejudice. You can say no. You cannot be the object of ridicule. And at one point in the interview, he even says, have I not done enough in terms of rep- representation? Like, what more do I need to do, basically, in order to convince people that this is not an acceptable way of showing dwarves or small people in these roles? Are you familiar with this controversy? I saw that on, like, the the, the news section of Twitter, and so I look, I looked into it a bit, but I was busy, so I didn't get to do, like, enough research but like it really is you know because it's kind of this holdover from i really hate to use the term freak shows because it's a, it it's a deeply wrong deeply offensive term but that's what they were called back in the day you know where you would go and point and laugh at people whose bodies were different you know and i think this is like in a series of unfortunate events it's kind of like satirize where the people in the quote-unquote freak show is like someone who's ambidextrous someone who has a slight hunch you know but yeah so like it's a holdover from that and like peter dinklage is saying it's the last accepted form of this kind of discrimination because it's not really it's not really as like campaign for activism wise well it is it's just that It's not disability, which a lot of people would would say that, like, this falls under a disability issue. It is campaigned for. There are a lot of disability activists and coalitions. But the problem is, is that if disability is seen under a medical model, which says disability is something that needs to be fixed, or that if you are disabled, you have, like, this tragic life, then people don't actually see it as a diversity issue. They see it as, like, a medical issue. And so, yeah, and I think the Discworld has an answer to this in the form of the librarian, where his being an ape is not something that needs to be fixed. So it's purely like, and for him, it's not a disability. So I'm not going to claim this as like a one to one disability rep, but it is something that all of the, like, especially like wizards and stuff, were like, don't you want to be changed back? even oh what's the what's the actual sorcerer's name coin yeah even coin asks the librarian don't you want to be fixed he doesn't there's nothing wrong with the way he is he likes how he is he's he's proud of that right yeah and unfortunately fantasy has a really long fantasy and movies which is kind of like the point of this has a really long history 
of othering small people by making them a separate species from humans. And so Terry Pratchett is obviously following in like that specific tradition, but he's also sort of turning it on its head by having these dwarves act in ways that we wouldn't normally see them act in a fantasy setting, which is why Game of Thrones was such a huge deal because Peter Dinklage's character, Tyrion, is a dwarf, but he is human, right? Like he is actually a small person. Like he is playing not a separate species. And of course that show also interrogates a lot of those attitudes around small people and disability. Yeah, because I was like looking at replies to this and stuff, and it made a good point where like some people were just not getting the point where they would be like, oh, well, they don't live in a cave. They work in a cave. That's not the point that Peter Dinklage is making. But the the form of dwarves that are in Snow White is this weird kind of like kitschy fairy tale version of dwarves, which has arisen from Germanic folk tales. And this is in relation to the point of like, well, what about dwarves in a Tolkien sense? But they're like specifically a separate thing and they're their own distinct culture. Whereas this is just like the way these dwarves in modern fantasy to do with the othering of small people, you know, it's just like, what if people were small? And uh, hold on, let me find this exactly. Uh, Rebecca Coakley, who is also a small person, retweeted this to talk about the importance of it. And I'm trying to find her exact tweet so I can quote her correctly. Sometimes I love it when people tweet a lot because I'm like, you know, you're you're great at this. I'm really glad that you have a lot of content. But then when I have to find a specific tweet, it's like, why do you tweet so much? Oh, update the Twitter app. There's a new function in the new update where if you go into someone's profile, there's a magnifying glass up at the top and you can search their tweets. That's awesome. She is a good follow on Twitter. I would highly recommend. Oh, here it is. Okay, so she retweeted this and said, she quoted him as saying, you're still making that fucking backwards story about seven dwarves living in a cave together. What the fuck are you doing, man? And then she said, he's not wrong. Believe me, averages, you haven't lived until you leave your office to frat boys drunkenly imitating your walk at a bar as you walk by chanting, hi ho, hi ho. So for her, this movie, this representation of dwarves, it's not just the representation. It's not actually just what's on screen. It's the way that it's used against small people that it has like cultural connotations that exist even outside the film itself. That's like a big part of this as well. But yeah, I thought that was interesting that this film was trying to explore some of those stereotypes by having like the trolls be like, wait, why are we acting this way on film? Or the dwarves being like, wait, why are we acting this way on film? Yeah, because then the dwarf at the end is like, when they're mining, not one more hi-ho out of you or else it's a double head pick duty or whatever it is. Right, and we get... And we get a throwback to the Ankh Morpork is on loam, not rock, because they're talking about mining and there's like, this is what a mine looks like. And the dwarves are like, this is not what a mine looks like. And you can't have a mine in Ankh Morpork anyway. It's on loam. <laughs> I'm so glad. Like, I'm really glad that it brought back our, our favorite fact from the Discworld that is built on loam. It's built on loam. I don't even remember what it was, what that was in relation to, but it's an enduring fact that Ankh Morpork is built on loam. Ankh Morpork built on loam, something to remember. 
All right, before we start just talking about the references and the cameos, there's one other fact or plot point that we have to talk about, and that is how they defeat the thing from the dungeon dimension that comes through the screen in response to the Hollywood dreams. And that is through moving picture magic, through the power of narrative, and through a giant knight that guards the door between this realm and the Hollywood dreams that looks somewhat like my uncle Oswald, which is obviously supposed to be a reference to the Academy Awards Oscar, like the knight that has the the sword. Oh, I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. So I am like anything which is kind of like, oh, meta about how stories work to return briefly to Rick and Morty. They have an episode in their season four. Uh, yeah, it's the first one after the season break, so it must be episode six, where it, it's the one that's sat on a train, and it's the whole thing. The whole thing is like about narrative devices and how they work. It's so good. I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. Yeah, and where Victor is like, no, I will get there in the nick of time because that is how movies work. That's how everyone saw me do it, right? Everybody has seen me. They There's thousands of people who have seen me do it on film, and so they believe that it must happen. So it will happen that way. Yeah, it's an implicit, like, it's this implicit belief. And I like that, it, like, specifically in something as culturally current as the movie industry is, and we're seeing this now, especially with, like, everything being bought up by media conglomerates. Uh, you know, like Disney has bought out all of these studios. In the games world, Microsoft has just bought out Activision and all these things for $70 billion. Let that sink in. Seven, if you had a dollar a year, $70 billion would be just before the dinosaurs went extinct. Think about that and tell me you don't want to just walk into the ocean. Um, yeah, real depressing stuff. Yeah, but that kind of thing where it's placed on this cultural belief that this is what happens in films. And this idea of realer than real, I think it's a really interesting cultural notion. And like the credence we give these films. Well, it's like religion. That's the parallel that Victor makes, right? He says like the gods wouldn't exist without belief in them. And this is the same thing, mm. right? It's all these people seeing something on a screen and all believing that it happens that way. And that's what gives him the ability to bend the narrative to his advantage, right? He is like, I, you know, I have a horse, I have a sword, uh, you know, I'm going to get there just in the nick of time because that's how it happens on screen. And I love when he's running up the stairs of the Tower of Art, which, by the way, I had to look this back up, but the ruin inside of the Tower of Art is what happened after sorcery. But remember, they don't remember the events of sorcery anymore, so they just assume that it's always been that way. Yeah, I thought that was weird for a second. I was like, has it always? And I'm like, no. No, no they've got, because. Yeah. Yeah, because Rinswind also goes up the Tower of Arish to get to Trimon. Right, exactly. And so he's running up the stairs. And I love how, like, halfway up, he's, he's like, running out of breath. And he's like, maybe, I, like, if the nick of time thing is true, then maybe if I just sat down and took a rest for a while, I'd still make it in the nick of time. And he's like, no, like, that's not actually how it works. You have to play fair. Right? Like, you have to, you mm. can't just take advantage of it. You still have to play by the rules. Yeah, the concept of having to play by the rules is a very Pratchett thing, but it's also very gaming, and especially the whole, like, 
the gods need belief because it's a very American gods thing about the faded gods that live in the orchard, the bone orchard underneath the world, and the reason why uh, the new gods and old gods are going to war. It's really interesting because we've talked so much about what in Good Omens we can now pick up as Pratchett seems to have written this as opposed to Gaiman because like a lot of the stuff in Discworld kind of seems to exist in spite of belief or lack thereof like because death exists there is just him there's you know no real concept of justice there's just him but then we also have blind io with the scales Gaiman explores this in the Sandman universe and like you said in American Gods so I think I think both of them are interested in the ways in which belief can bend reality and like create things. If enough people believe it, then that can change the way that things are perceived. And we're going to see that this idea will play a huge role in later books, especially books like Small Gods, which is specifically about religion. So, yeah, we do get that. And the gods then in in pyramids. Right. The gods are in conflict. Yeah. Yeah, because like I mentioned, pyramids mm-hmm. where it's like there is too much belief all at once of right. Yeah, with themselves because of how different people believe, and also that's just a thing as well. Myth- mythology, there is no established canon because there's a whole bunch of different people saying it, and this is a symptom of especially modern films because we've seen it happen with like this idea that there's one set canon for greek or norse mythology from films and like how we perceive thor and loki as because of marvel comics um and disney has done this to folk stories where we talk about oh in in the original cinderella there there is no original cinderella and if you read like any like a collection like andrew lang's you know folk collection of folk tales that he he collected them from around the world and we can talk about some of the colonialist aspects of that, but if you actually read through like the different kinds of folktales, you'll start to notice that some folktales are come from like an unconsciousness of humanity. Like you have tales that are kind of similar to each other all over the world. And yeah, it, it's fascinating. There isn't just like one version of it. It's like a bunch of different versions of the same story. I like that. I thought it was a very touching moment where it's revealed that um, Victor has been reading the pictographs the wrong way and that the the chanting and praying was to remember Hollywood in all its glory. This kind of like idealization of a golden age, which is funny on the outset because then you like you're sitting on top of a movie theater where everyone died in it. And I think it's like a fundamental example of the fact that there is no real place that your nostalgia is from the you know like the rose the rose tinted glasses if you take them off you're looking at a, a a nuclear wasteland if you've heard everybody's free to wear sunscreen the Baz Luhrmann class of whatever it is 85 speech you know yeah, I it reminds me of the beginning of Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. Um, it's all happened before and it probably will happen again. Like this idea of there's there's a cyclical nature to these types of stories too, right? It's not just like Hollywood has happened before. It was in this city that sunk under the sea. It's a real Atlantis myth, right? And then 
But but Victor says it's happened again, but it's also prop- probably happened in almost every universe that has ever existed. It, it, the Where it gets its power is from the cyclical repetitive nature of its performance. Yeah, because, I mean, as well, when you look at modern Hollywood, four words, reboot, remake, prequel, sequel. Right, exactly. Nostalgia is a powerful thing. It's anti-utopian, but it's a powerful thing. Mm. This, again, I mentioned this when we were talking about Reaper Man. Like, I really wish Terry Pratchett were alive just because like, I'd like him to not be dead. But I'd really love to see what a Discworld novel would tackle in today's day and age. Yeah, like, what's the, what would be the things that he wanted to talk about? Like, what are the things that he would notice? Like, this whole fanaticism towards Hollywood, where they're literally in, like, a fugu state, where they don't know what's happening. Like, Victor, when he's confronted by Rock and Mori, is like, you know, why did you attack us with the sword? He's like, I have no, I don't remember that, I have no memory of that, is a f- a weird link back to the death of the mind that happens in this cult who wants like death to all magic users in the light fantastic. Cause yeah, he and Bo- Ginger both experienced this and Ginger sleepwalks, right? Although hmm. like he pointed out, he should have known that the thing she was trying to wake up wasn't malevolent when it like cared about her and him, right? Like she ties him up instead of killing him. She puts tacks around her bed to wake herself up, but she, like, picks them up in her sleep. Yeah, it's a nice detail that they don't really, like, go into in possession media. All right, let's talk about all the references. What were the references that you picked up on to film and classic cinema and Hollywood? So the whole, like, okay, obviously the posters are kind of like that era of, of of posters you know like in a world gone mad this like you imagine them they've, they've got the yellow background and the font is like poofy and white and right it's got like a there'll be like a woman lounging backwards or like fainting at something like the hammer horror type posters oh i was thinking errol flynn like the action adventure swashbuckling films but yeah very similar very lurid yeah, very lurid. Um, and then as well, the you've got the whole blown away is a reference to Gone with the Wind and the setup for the burning of Ankh Morpork in a, like a city riven by war is just that's just the plot to Casablanca, isn't it? Blown away, yeah, like yeah, but the burning of the city of Ankh Morpork is supposed to be the burning of Atlanta in Gone with the Wind. I did enjoy the whole explanation about the Ankh Civil War, how nobody really knows how it started. Mm. And we've got the, uh, <laughs> frankly, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, you know, but mm-hmm. I liked yeah. how that was in relation to what should we say for the line? And then they go like, oh, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And they're like, huh, that sounds good. What else? There's a singing in the rain reference. Yeah, cut me on through a dibbler, reenact singing in the rain. And Colin sees him. I thought they weren't going to make explicit reference to it, but then, like, literally at the end of the paragraph, Colin says, oh, what's he got to be singing in the rain like that for? And it's like, okay, you don't need to, you don't need to hit us over the head with it. <laughs> There's a lot in here that tries to hit you over the head. Yeah. Obviously the King Kong one. To touch briefly on the one thing I didn't like was this plot with the elephants. I don't understand why it was. But then also, like, I, the fact I kept referring to him as the Elephant Man, 
makes it very you know because it's like a david lynch john hurt film but also i don't know when that came out in relation to this so it could just be my brain using the familiar phrase i hate saying the familiar phrase the elephant man but right yeah i didn't really like it either it didn't make a lot of sense to me it seemed kind of distracting and it didn't really have as much of a point i mean i did like dibbler saying and a thousand elephants after every idea that he pitched because i think that that's a very like hollywood hollywood type of thing to say but i don't know why we actually had to go into the thousand elephants like how to transport them across the disc world that didn't make sense to me what i thought was very funny in relation to that was their reasoning that yeah, you have to go up a mountain, but you have to go down the side of the the other side of the mountain. So therefore, on average, it's flat the whole way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There were some good jokes in there. It just didn't. I don't know. It just didn't really seem to fit. I was just like bored. I want to look go back to Hollywood. Like I don't. I don't need this. Mm. But yeah, I liked some of the ones that I I thought I noticed were at one point somebody says that's all, folks. I can't do a Porky Pig voice, but. That's all. <laughs> yeah, it's the end of the Looney Tunes cartoon, which obviously gets referenced by the talking animals. We get the popcorn, which they call banged grains. Isn't there a a Bugs Bunny reference as well? Oh yeah, I mean the rabbit is supposed to be Bugs, the talking rabbit. He does say like "What's up, Doc?" at some stage, doesn't he? He does say that. There's a reference to the seven year itch when Ginger has the dream about the the hot air from the grate blowing up her dress. No, but just as well, the whole, like, what's up, Doc, where Bugs Bunny lent on the the post and ate the thing is a reference to Clark Gable. So it's another reference to classic yeah. cinema. Yeah, like, it's a thing which would have been familiar to audiences of the time, but now it's become entirely devoid or, like, uh, separate from its original context, where this is now a Bugs Bunny thing. But when Bugs Bunny originally did it, it was a Clark Gable thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a reference within her. I mean, I'm not even, like, scratching the surface, probably, on all of the meta-references in here, mm. for sure. Because, like, they're all, like, stacked on top of each other the way that Terry Pratchett says universes are all stacked on top of each other. But you get uh, the librarian who's obsessed with cinema comes up with a screenplay that sounds like a reverse Tarzan, where it's, like, an ape that gets adopted by humans in the city and, mm. like, grows up with the humans you also get a lot of references to the different studios in Hollywood. So Untied Alchemist is supposed to be like United. United Artists, yeah. Yeah, United Artists. I already ta- mentioned Century of the F- Fruit Bat is 20th Century Fox. There's also Ginger Dreams about a bunch of different logos. So there's the Paramount logo, the Columbia logo, and then the uh, MGM logo with the Lion Roar. She dreams about all those logos. She describes them, but you wouldn't necessarily know what they were if you hadn't seen those logos Well, before. there's explicit reference to Paramount at one stage yes. where the Guardian is is the protector of the Paramountain. Right, yeah, the Paramountain, yeah. So there's that reference as well. The Chariot references are references to Ben-Hur. Yeah. And there's also a Jaws reference when Dibbler says, we need a shark yeah. at one point. Why would there be sharks? Yeah. They would have gotten trampled by the elephants. I suppose you're right. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's that reference as well. There's a this is not cinema, but there's like that meta text that meta narrator Oscar Wilde joke in a footnote where they were like, they this is as close to Oscar Wilde as trolls would get. So again, Oscar Wilde does not exist on the Discworld, but the narrator knows who not Oscar Wilde is. Mm. 
Let's see. I talked about the ring reference as well. There's also um, some the pop punk. Reference. I'm pretty sure it's like a pop punk music video or a music. No, I'm not sure whether it's the same one, but there's a music video where like a giant character comes out of a film screen. And then there's also an alien app farm music video where they go through a screen into different films like Karate Kid. Yeah, I mean, like, this is not a new concept. It was just the fact that it was, like, horrific reminded me of The Ring. Yeah. The fact that it was, like, a someone coming out of a screen in a terrifying way. Hmm. Yeah, so those are the ones that I kind of noticed. I'm sure there's a lot more. There was a lot of references to Lord of the Rings as well, because he fights, like, what is a Balrog? But they call it something else. A Balrog. A Balrog. Right. Rock the Troll is supposed to be a reference to Rock Hudson. Um. Yeah. Is a Balrog a D&D monster? Maybe. I think. I'm pretty I, sure. I don't think if, I've played enough traditional D&D. I'm pretty sure know. I've heard that mentioned in like an episode of Critical Role or something. So I feel like it could be a thing, you know, like, which is a reference to Tolkien. But I think like Balrog might be a, a thing which is also in D&D. Question. I had to look this up. This was not a uh, a movie or a cinema reference, but it is a British slang that I had to look up. The what is the health of your parent? Oh, yeah. How's your, yeah, a bit of how's your father? Right, which I had no idea what that was, but apparently it's also like a reference to Carry On, which is a series of films. Yes. I don't know. I just, I had to look it up because I was like, I have no idea what that means. Yeah, the Carry On things are a big series, and sometimes like ITV will show a whole bunch of them back to back, and there's like a load of, that's, that's kind of like the big last hurrah for character actors. Is, is the carry on right. films is over here anyway but yeah a bit of how's your father is also just a reference to um having sex so and then of course uh the last line that ginger says to victor when they're about to get together is cheer up and tomorrow is another day which is the final line of gone with the wind so that's there's there's just references all over the place here and if you dear listeners have noticed any references that we missed we'd love to hear about them like tweet at us like it's it's definitely something that we both enjoy let's talk a bit about cameos before we move on to the end of this because there are also a lot of cameos of characters from other Discworld books um there's the patrician which we mentioned before mm-hmm. there's also the librarian who does have more of a role in this but He's obsessed with moving pictures. He also figures out what's going on because he goes and he reads the uh, Necrotelecomicon, which is a reference to uh, the Necrotelecomicon from H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, but also, I think, from The Evil Dead, which is a film. So, yeah, he's got this going on. There was some really funny bits with the librarian. I loved how uh, the bursar explains to Rid Coley what happened to the librarian at the beginning. And it takes Rid Coley a while to wrap his brain around it, but he eventually gets there. And I also really loved how Ginger kept calling him a monkey, but didn't realize what she was doing until the librarian hears it. And then like take he and you're expecting him to like lose his shit like he has in like other books. But then he just takes her hand and like she apologizes, which I just thought that was great. I thought that was a really fun reversal of that joke. Mm. Let's see who else was in this. We got Mrs. Whitlock, who discovers the resiograph. So we've seen Mrs. Whitlock before, the housekeeper of Unseen University, or the head housekeeper. Yeah. We get Ponder Stibbins is introduced in this book. I didn't think he was introduced until later, but Ponder Stibbins is a student at the Unseen University. Now, who, now he's a postgrad. the exam. Now he's a postgrad. So we are going to see him in future books. I believe the next book we see him in 
I believe is the Hogfather, but he also has another book that is he's sort of the main character of, so I'm excited to see that. Let's see. We also get Mrs. Cosmopolite, who is the landlady of Ginger and also the costume designer of a lot of these films. That is someone that is going to be referenced late in later books as well. Who else is in this? There is a fun reference to the color of magic in this where they're talking about how the city of Ankh-Morpork has burned down a lot of times and once it was even for the insurance money. That was really fun. Yeah, the insurance. Oh my god. I love the part where the bursar is talking, is explaining the librarian to Ridicoli and how he's like, well, he didn't say all that exactly. He just said ook. And Ridicoli's like, you got all that from ook? Well, you just kind of figure out how to understand him after a while but then there's that exact same moment with victor and ginger later on where it's she doesn't understand him and it's like ook just you got that from just one ook well he said it like like from a couple different ooks right from a couple different ooks uh we also get a reference to nerd it's not called that but when they're talking about ahmed the i get these headaches i just get these headaches he talks about how he drank clatchy and coffee and went out the other side of sobriety. So that's the opposite of drunk, which is nerd. Yeah. This is a fun, this is a fun recurring thing. The opposite of things. Yeah. The opposite of a things. A staple of the Nanny Ogs book club podcast. Of course. And then we also get Colin and Nobbs, especially both of them at the end. Mm. Especially Nob, Nobby being like, can I tell him that all these elephants have shown up for him? I thought that was that was very fun. All right. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about before we start our our stats? Yes, now it is time for Nigel to quote the mountain goats. Oh yay! Oh, I don't even know whether the second bonus one was was caught the you were cool one. Oh well, anyway. Th- there's one potentially two bonus ones before this. Uh so This one made me think of there's a lot of songs on the album We Shall All Be Healed, which kind of like deal with the concept of Hollywood in an indirect sense. You know, there's like one which, oh, the name is escaping me at the minute, but they're talking about like, oh, it's Letter from Belgium. That's what it is, where they're talking about like Susan and her notebook, freehand drawings of Lon Chaney, blueprints for geodesic domes, all this like weird things that addicts draw in their notebooks but it made me think of palm quarter yana which is uh a song which i don't really know what it's about other than being about addicts but uh the narrator of the song is constantly dreaming of a camera like as if their lives were being watched in a paranoid sense but also like Mm. if this were like the narrative lens of something um but and it's paired with his desperation at like the utter destitution of their their situation um yeah so uh send send somebody out for soda come through the carpet for clues reflective tape on our sweatpants big holes in our shoes every couple minutes someone says he can't stand it anymore laugh lines in our faces scale maps of the ocean floor and i dreamt of a camera pointing out from inside the television and the aperture yawning and blinking very much like the um Hollywood dreams and the headstones climbed up the hills which you could read as the Hollywood hills I guess and then it goes into the last verse if anybody comes to see me tell them they just miss me by a minute 
If anybody comes into our room while we're asleep, I hope they incinerate everybody in it. Yeah, I could see a lot of parallels between that and this book in terms of talking about Hollywood and sort of the warping effect it has on reality. All right, there are four death sightings in this book. The first one happens very early on in the first couple of pages when death shows up to take the last remaining priest or guardian or whatever you want to call him of the gateway in Hollywood. And so the idea is that he's been the one keeping Hollywood at bay from spreading its dreams all over the disc and death comes to take him. We also get death in the bar in Hollywood when detritus, silverfish, and gasboat are all sort of drinking away their sorrows, and the bartender is serving someone that he can't quite see, but he knows that he's serving them, and he's not sure even if he's hearing his voice. I really love the bit at the end where he comes back through the door and said, I'm sorry, I also need a packet of nuts. Is famine with him? Uh, Yeah, maybe famine is with him. Who knows? It's It's hard to know on that. Then death also shows up as the ginger thing from the Dungeon Dimensions is falling off of the Tower of Art, and he takes the the thing's life and he says, you belong dead, which is actually a reference to Boris Karloff's final words in the 1935 movie Bride of Frankenstein, we belong dead. So another movie reference that, that death makes there. And then we see death, like you said, at the end, coming for Gasbode, but then he turns over the time, the time turner, so Gasbode gets a little bit more life. So those are the four death sightings in this book. Sort is mentioned when the the alchemist is trying to remember what some bugger over Sortway said. Um, he was in his bath and he had this idea for something. And he ran out down the street yelling. So he's trying to remember that he said Eureka, which means I found it, which is the story of Archimedes in the bath discovering. I don't even remember what he discovered. But displacement. Is, yeah, displacement. So that that's the that's that story. And so the whole point is that Archimedes, the Archimedes, the Discworld Archimedes parallel lives in sort. And then the Great Pyramid of Sort is mentioned hold on let me find it uh they build a giant like plaster replica of it for a set like a model yeah Yeah. they make like a model of sort so there's a lot of model work references because that's how like a lot of stuff was done you know they'd make miniatures of it to make things seem big or whatever or for like backing shots but i think it's really funny that the um the Discworld equivalent of Archimedes, a Greek, lives in sort, but in pir- right, in pyramids. Yeah. When we meet all of the Greek analogs, they're in Aphivi. Yeah, so it is interesting that there's like a difference, or maybe the person's getting it wrong. Maybe they're like it's sort way, but it's somebody who doesn't really think a lot about the boundaries of uh, countries. I don't know. Yeah, because sort is what it's separated from Aphivi just by Jelly Baby. Just by Jelly Baby. Yep. Mm. The first footnote is on page six of my copy. So let me find it. It's about Ankh-Morpork. Pork. Citizens hate living there. And if they have to move away on business or adventure, or more usually until some statute of limitations runs out, can't wait to get back so they can enjoy hating living there some more. They put stickers on the backs of their carts saying, Ankh-Morpork, Pork, loathe it or leave it. They call it the Big Wahoonie after the fruit. Footnote. This is the one that grows only in certain parts of heathen Hwanda land. It is 
20 feet long, covered in spikes, the color of earwax, and smells like an anteater that has eaten a very bad ant. So, in case you were wondering what the big wahoonie looks like, or what wahoonie looks like, what was your favorite footnote? Okay, I think it's a tie for, there's two that are fairly close together, where there was Dibbler, there was Dibbler's nephew, there was the handleman. There were the extras. There were assorted. There were the assorted vice presidents and other people who were apparently called into existence by the mere presence of moving picture creation. Footnote: Some of them have clipboards. I think it was funny, just like the fact that <laughs> they appear and the weird nepotism that Dib- the Dibbler gets into, where everyone is a vice president of something. Yeah. Yeah, that or uh. How detritus always has like a different title. Like he's always the vice president of something else. Yeah. In the heartlands of the great dark continent of Clatch, the air was heavy and pregnant with the promise of the coming monsoon. Bullfrogs croaked in the rushes. Footnote. But were edited out of the finished production. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love how this book calls... It calls such attention to the... craft of filmmaking. The ways in which the things we see on screen appear more real than they actually are not only in a philosophical way, but in an actual way. Like, even buildings don't actually look like that. Like, the front looks much better than the back. Or, like, the bullfrogs are edited out for sound quality. Like, all of that stuff. My favorite footnote, it's very short, and it happens on page 310, so fairly late in the book, and it involves the librarian. The librarian crouched on the dome of the library, watching the crowd scurrying through the streets as the monstrous figure lurched nearer. He was slightly surprised to see it followed by some sort of spectral horse whose hooves made no sound on the cobbles. And that was followed by a three-wheeled bath chair that took the corner on only two of them, sparks streaming away behind it. It was loaded down with wizards, all shouting at the tops of their voices. Occasionally, one of them would lose his grip and have to run behind until he could get up enough speed to leap on it again. Three of them hadn't made it. That is, one of them had made it sufficiently to get a grip on the trailing leather cover, and the other two had made it just enough to grab the robe of the one in front. So now, every time it took a bend, a tail of three wizards going, Wah! snapped wildly across the road behind it. There was also a number of civilians, but if anything, they were shouting louder than the wizards. The librarian had seen many weird things in his time, but this was undoubtedly the 57th strangest. Footnote, he had a tidy mind. I don't know why that footnote made me laugh very hard, but like the idea that this was only the 57th strangest thing that the librarian had ever seen and that he is aware enough of them in order to catalog it, log it, that just made this footnote for me. Sometimes footnotes don't have to be long to be good. Mm. Yeah, like the, I don't know, that has a particular resonance with me. When I was in fifth class, I would have been 11. Our teacher had the saying empty debt or untidy desk untidy mind empty desk empty mind which is i don't know a rather strange piece of educational dogma but it's one that has always stuck with me because if you look at any of the places that i live they're a fucking mess seems a little ableist to me <laughs> like not everybody's minds work the same way yeah okay but so i think it was more so just like like divorce, like I don't think it was a, a, an ableist thing on how people's minds work. It's just like that if you have a bunch of stuff on your desk, it shows you're working. I guess, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Which is the interpretation I have taken through the years. Which is, you know, you look at wherever I live, and you can just tell that it is a circus inside of my head. 
Ah, you have too many things going on. Yeah, exactly. So there's things everywhere. Look, leave leave Pat Murta alone. He's he's not an ableist, okay? Okay, I don't know this person. I just I'm I am sensitive to people saying if you're if you don't have a tidy workspace, then you're not organized or whatever. Like I've been tortured. I have ADHD. I've been tortured by people telling me that I should mm. work a certain way my but whole life. But the thing is, so I'm sensitive. Tidiness is not a thing in this untidy desk, untidy mind, but empty desk, empty mind. If you have nothing on your desk, uh, no work. No work yeah. has been done. That makes sense. What's the thing that made you laugh out loud in this book? You'd mention it, though. I always feel bad for having a moment that you've picked or that you bring up at a different time. But it's the minute, it's the moment where Victor is like, well, can I just take a rest when I'm running up this? <laughs> and then they're like, no, I have to play fair. Fine. Um, That's such a good one. The one that I picked, I, I love how Gaspode keeps referring to Ginger as the cat person because he like can't get over the fact that she likes cats more than she likes mm. dogs. But as someone who has owned a dog, I felt very close to this particular paragraph. The universe contains any amount of horrible ways to be woken up, such as the noise of a mob breaking down the front door, the scream of fire engines, or the realization that today is the Monday, which on Friday night was a comfortably long way off. A dog's wet nose is not strictly speaking the worst of the bunch but it has its own peculiar dreadfulness with qu- which connoisseurs of the ghastly and dog owners everywhere have come to know and dread. It's like having a small piece of defrosting liver lovingly pressed against you. <laughs> I laughed and then made Sam listen to me read that out loud because I've had a dog. I know I you have, have a dog. Dogs. Being woken up by a very cold dog's nose pressed up against you is rather horrifying. It's almost as horrifying as when you touch a dog and you realize that they're wet. Oh. And you're like, why are you wet? Yeah, well, see, I live mainly in the countryside where it's normally wet. So the usual excuse is they've just been outside. So there's no recourse to mystery wetness. But I see. Well, for me, it's not necessarily like when you know why they're wet, like, oh, you've just been outside. Then it's not as horrifying. But it's when like there's no possible explanation for the wetness. That's what I'm saying. We, we never have a moment where it's unexplained. Yeah. But when I'm up here in Dublin, in the city, and I pet a dog and it's wet, I'm like, how? How are you wet? What is this wetness? Yeah. Yeah. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. And I like that that's the only thing that can snap Victor out of the trance that he falls into when they're showing Blown Away is the wet dog snows. And Gasboat is like, do you want me to bite you? And he's like, no, this is good enough. <laughs> but- <laughs> All right. What's the thing that made you think? It's always best to know your own mind, said Victor diplomatically. You know what the greatest tragedy is in the whole world, said Ginger, not paying him the least attention. It's all the people who never find out what it is they really want to do, or what it is they're really good at. It's all the sons who become blacksmiths because their fathers were blacksmiths. It's all the people who could be really fantastic flute players, who grow old and die without ever seeing a musical instrument, so they become bad plowmen instead. It's all the people with talents who who never even find out. Maybe they're never even born at a time when it's possible to find out. I like that's so profound as someone who's experiencing a current existential crisis about what she wants to do. Yeah, and this idea of like being born in the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time. I mean, I think about that a lot when it comes to like thinking about the flow of history and all the people who've ever yeah. lived. And all like as well the the whole like 
like it goes back to like they want to be actors and that's what they think they should be and then there's a, a line a couple pages on where they say don't know where you're meant to be but holly hollywood is where you ought to be yeah this this whole like this whole thing of like ought and should that's a very big thing in ireland and i know it's like a thing everywhere obviously because like people have expectations of you but there's a lot of like societally enforced ideas of what is and is not acceptable are, are you aware of notions yeah i think you've told me about this before but go ahead and explain it yeah maybe i did but like this whole concept of notions is short for notions of grandeur which we don't say the full thing because well self-explanatory but this whole idea that maybe i have but also maybe people will take these podcasts in a different order in the same way that we're doing the books that's true. maybe they're listening to maybe they're listening to the show in publication order who knows but yeah this whole idea of like if you go and do something like oh this is really weird i was having a meal with my friend for reaching final year when we went to eddie rockets and we were like oh we'll get something nice it'll be a treat and um i had a burger with truffle oil on it and i mentioned it to my mother and my mother said oh it's far from truffle oil you were reared i'm sorry <laughs> can i not have a moment right to, you know yeah yeah i'm like i'm not i'm not saying my mother is a bad person but it's this cultural thing where you know right. it was far from truffle oil that i was reared but it's not where i ought to be yeah, and I think that I think that that's true in a lot of places when it comes to different signifiers of class. Like, there's a lot of different ways in which people in different classes define themselves by material things and material like sig signifiers. And so there's these ways in which people who are of a higher class like look down on material signifiers from a lower class, and then people from a lower class look down on signifiers from an upper class because they're like, oh, well, you think you're better than me? Like, that's kind of the the attitude. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah, but the, the thing you just have to understand about notions is, well, it's not necessarily material things. Sometimes it's literally just an idea. Ah, like, I see. Or, you know, someone could go to college and they could end up getting into, like, a good college, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. No Notions. They've got notions. Ah, uh, yeah, you think... It, it, but it is connected to that idea of, like, you think you're better than me. You think that you're... Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So mine has to do a little bit with yours. It's, it is a different place, but it does kind of link with yours in a really interesting way. So it's the scene where the audience in the Blown Away Theater is arguing with Victor because they're all looking to him to save the day because they've seen him save the day in so many films. We've talked about this before. But Ginger says, they think we're real. No one's doing anything because they think you're a hero for God's sake. And we can't do anything. This thing is bigger than both of us. Victor stared down at the damp cobblestones. I can probably remember some magic, he thought, but ordinary magic's no good against the dungeon dimensions. And I'm pretty sure real heroes don't hang around in the middle of cheering crowds. They get on with the job. Real heroes are like poor old Gaspode. No one ever notices them until afterwards. That's the reality. And then, of course, he has this revelation of, well, what is reality when it comes to narrative? But the thing that struck me about what she said, like, oh, they think we're real, was this idea about celebrity. And the ways in which when we see people on a screen, we often misidentify who they're playing with who they are, or we misidentify their public persona that they play on talk shows or in interviews or whatever with who they actually are. And we think they're real, right? Like the idea of like a parasocial relationship 
with someone who we don't actually know at all. Like, like we can joke about Nicolas Cage and say like, oh, he's a nonsense man and he's delightful or whatever, but we don't actually know Nicolas Cage. Like neither one of us have ever met him as far as I can tell or like have hung out with him or talked with him at all. But we I'm like going to say nothing. Yeah. Oh, you have met Nicolas Cage. I'm saying nothing. Okay. Do you want to tell the story of how you met Nicolas Cage? No. Okay. But like the idea that like, we think we know who these people are Mm. and they seem real to us. Sometimes they seem more real than people we actually know, but they're not real. They're they're We've never met these people, right? It's why people got mad at John Mulaney for leaving his wife. Okay. But like know anything about that situation. Okay. But like that was a dick move. I mean, I agree with you, but the point is, is that I actually don't know anything about their relationship. We just know. Oh, neither do I. But the whole, like the whole, uh, I'm not going to get into just the whole situation around it was like, that's a very, yeah, nothing to do with his character. Yeah. Right. That's not really my point. Like, I don't want to get into litigating these things, but it's interesting that we treat these people like they're real people that, and the stuff we know about them that we think is real is not tied to who they are as people at all. It's tied to a performance, either in film or in like a public performance sort of way. So I thought that was interesting. Cough, cough, misery by Stephen King. Cough, cough. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely people who have written about that before as well. Yeah. All right. Next episode. Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og, and Magrat go on a fairy tale holiday in Witches Abroad. The gang's back together. Woo. I'm excited. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? They can find me mainly on Twitter, at SpicyNigel, where recently I've been tweeting about uh, how I totally wouldn't kill Jordan Peterson. Um, Not at all. <laughs> I don't know, whether you, don't know whether you saw that one, but um, yeah, if I ever saw Jordan Peterson in person, I would take him aside and you'd hear a loud bang like a gunshot, but I'd tell you that it was unrelated. It's and, not uh, related at all. Yeah. yeah. Ali, my co-host from Hyperfixations, just responded, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> that and I found a Korean MMO um, mass multiplayer online game. And the map is literally just Ireland. It's so funny to me. Like, my friend Gwen, shout out Gwen, hello, showed me the thing. and Because they were like, how would you pronounce these? Because these seem like Irish words. And it was literally like, Shida Shnakta, which is like Mound of Snow. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And so then they sh- they showed me the map and it's just got like places that are direct, like Tara, like the Hill of Tara, just direct names from, they've got the Irish name for like an Irish name, which is traditionally associated with Donegal, Tirchunnel. Like what? It's so bizarre. And then you can find my shows, Archive Admirers and Hyperfixations, everywhere the podcasts are. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, at Monkey Backlog. We have also recently restarted Tessa Watches Lost, which is our second Monkey Off My Backlog episode every week. So we have our main episode and then the Watches series where Sam and I make each other watch different television shows. So I am currently releasing episodes about me watching season three of Lost. 
So you can you can find that also on the Monkey Off My Backlog feed. You can also find me on a recently, I was on an episode of Wild Pretty Things where I helped them compile a top 10 list for 2021. I believe that is through their Patreon, but it is a good episode where me and a lot of other people from different podcasts got together to hash out the best films of 2021. You I'm so jealous. <laughs> you can find Wild Pretty Things on Twitter at Wild Pretty Pod. Wild Pretty Things is such a good show. You should definitely listen to it. Oh my god. Yeah, it is very, very good. Melissa and Jarrett are excellent. I've also been on to talk about Alien. I think that's also a Patreon-only episode, but it's good. Highly recommend. Mm. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. You can find us on Instagram at Nanny Ogs Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. About 30 miles turnwise of Ankh-Morpork, the surf boomed on the wind-blown, seagrass-waving, sand-dune-covered spit of land where the Circle Sea met the rim ocean. Sea swallows dipped low over the waves. The dried hands of sea poppies clattered in the perpetual breeze, which scoured the sky of clouds and moved the sand around in curious patterns. The hill itself was visible for miles. It wasn't very high, but lay amongst the dunes, like an upturned boat, or a very unlucky whale, and was covered in scrub trees. No rain fell here, if it could possibly avoid it. But the wind blew, and piled the dunes high against the dried-out, bleached wood of the Holywood town. It howled its auditions on the deserted backlots. It tumbled scraps of paper through the crumbling plaster wonders of the world. It rattled the boards until they fell into the sand and were covered. Click, 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 click. The wind sighed around the skeleton of a picture-throwing box, leaning drunkenly on its abandoned tripod. It caught a trailing scrap of film and wound out the last picture show, snaking the crumbling, glistening coils across the sand. In the picture-thrower's glass eye, tiny figures danced jerkily, alive for just a moment. Click, click, The film broke free and whirled away before the dunes. Click, click. The handle swung backwards and forwards for a moment, and then stopped. Click. Hollywood dreams. The end.